My paper today is on Render Under Caesar. I call it the most, uh, Amos most misunderstood New Testament passage. And what inspired me to write this paper was, uh, of a very devout Catholic friend who said, don't you know, Jeff, that Jesus supported taxes? And I said, gee, no, I didn't know that. And he said, sure he did. You know that there's that Render Under Caesar passage. And so I've, I've looked into this and, uh, wanna, wanna do a little exposition on this passage. So I, before I go in, I just want to really briefly, I'm not into the death by PowerPoint. I just want to unfortunately read the, we do have to read the passage. So, uh, this is from the Dewey Range translation. Then the Pharisees going consulted among themselves how to ensnare him in speech. And they sent him to their disciples with the Herodians saying, Master, we know that thou art a true speaker and teachest the way of God and truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou dost not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what, that, what dost thou think? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why do you tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the coin of the tribute. And they offered him a penny. It's literally a denarium or a denarius. And Jesus saith to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They, saith to him, they say to him, Caesar. And he saith to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they wondered, and leaving him, they went their ways. Now here's the problem. This comes from St. Justin Martyr being written, this is written about, oh, circa about 150 AD. St. Justin Martyr says, And everywhere we more readily than all men endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by him. For at that time, some came to him and asked him if one ought to pay the tribute to Caesar, and he answered, Tell me whose image does the coin bear? And they said, Caesar's. This pro-tax position is first, ex- first expounded by St. Justin, My- Justin Martyr, and has been with us ever since. Now, not everyone agrees with this position, I might add. Augustine disagrees with this position. But, for example, as eminent scholars like Lord Acton and James Shaw agree with St. Justin Martyr and take the pro-tax position. But really, the question is, did Jesus really mean for his followers to provide financial support to Tiberius Caesar, a murderer, a pedophile, a tyrant, and a man who declared himself a god? And, and, and Tiberius was really a sexual deviant. Um, Suetonius describes him as taking a swim in a pool. And as he would jump into the pool, he would have prepubescent boys swim up and nibble at his naked body. I mean, really a, a, a complete nut job. <laughs> I can't imagine that that's exactly what Jesus would mean by this. So the paper that I've written looks at four, four basic things. It looks at the historical setting of the tribute episode. It looks at the rhetorical structure of the tribute episode. It looks at the context within the Gospels. And finally, because I'm a Catholic, with again, with my apologies to my evangelical colleagues, uh, the Catholic Church's interpretation of the tribute episode. The historical setting, tax revolt. Uh, you can see there's Judea. It's a Roman province on the backwater of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Um, by 6 AD, Rome imposes a census tax. It's a head tax. And by 17 AD, the Judean province is appealing to Rome for relief. Ro- uh, Romans were pretty brutal here in their imposition of these taxes. And, and the Jews were not particularly happy about that. And there was a tax revolt led by a man by the name of Judas the Galilean. Judas taught as Josephus reports that taxation was no better than the introduction to slavery, and he and his followers had a, quote, inviolable attachment to liberty. 
This revolt lasted for decades, and the Romans responded by crucifying two of Judas' sons uh, in 46 A.D. And a, and a grandson in 66 A.D. Now, sw- switching gears, that's the sort of general overview of the, the background. Um, in Jerusalem, the tribute episode takes place right after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's a hotbed of political and religious fervor. Throngs of, of religious pilgrims have been streaming into the city because of the Passover celebration. Uh, they just proclaimed Jesus king. Now, Passover celebrates the, uh, the, the, deliver, the deliverance of the Israel, Israelite people from the Egyptians and the restoration of the Israelites to the land of Israel, land now occupied by the Romans. And because of the mass of pilgrims, the Roman procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate, had also temporarily taken up residence in Jerusalem, along with a multitude of troops, so as to suppress any religious violence. Uh, in Judea, Pilate was the emperor's chief soldier, chief magistrate, uh, head of the judicial system, and chief tax collector. Philo's described Pilate as cruel, exceedingly angry, a man of most ferocious passions, who had a habit of insulting people and murdering them untried and uncondemned with the most grievous of inhumanity. In fact, just a few years prior to Jesus' ministry, the image of Caesar nearly precipitated an insurrection in Jerusalem when Pilate, by cover of night, surreptitiously erected effigies of the emperor on the fortress San Antonia, Antonia adjoining the Jewish temple. Um, Jewish law forbade the, both the creation of graven images and their introduction in the holy city of Jerusalem. Pilate averted a bloodbath only by removing the images. As I said, in short, Jerusalem would have, only, would have been a hotbed of political and religious fervor it's against this, this background that the, that the tribute episode unfolds. So the first thing we look at is the, the, they, they ask them the question. And the question is really, is it listed under the Torah to pay taxes to the Romans? This is a halakhic question. It's a question on a point of religious law. And really what the interrogators are doing is they're tempting Jesus to assume the authority of a rabbi. And they expect him to, number one, answer the question. And number two, base that answer in in Scripture. They're testing his scriptural knowledge and they're hoping to discredit him if he cannot answer the question. And it's a malevolently brilliant question. If Jesus says it's lawful to pay the tribute, he'll be seen as a collaborator with the Romans. Um, if, if he says it's not lawful to pay the tribute, he'll end up alienating the Romans and, of course, he'll be seen as a political prisoner. It'll be seen as treason. Jesus immediately recognizes the trap. He exposes the hostility and the hypocrisy of his interrogators. And he rhetorically first asks why his questioners are tempting him. And he also recognizes that his questioners are daring him to enter the temporal fray of Judeo-Roman politics. But instead of entering the political discussion, Jesus curiously asks to see the coin. Now, I, I note that the coin, it's, he doesn't have to respond. He doesn't need to see the coin to respond. So that he requests to see the coin suggests that there's something meaningful about the coin itself. And in the tribute episode, the coin is a denarius. And the interrogators produce this, this small little silver coin. It's approximately a tenth of an ounce, about 3.9 grams of silver. The Romans hadn't gotten into debasing it with any vigor at that time. Under Nero, they, they started really debasing it. Roughly the day's wages. Um, it was truly the emperor's property. It was issued by Emperor Tiberius. Tiberius issued... Um, Whereas Augustus issued hundreds of, of denarii, Tiberius issued only three. And, and of the three, 
uh, one was, was really typically popular. And Tiberius preferred this third and issued it from his personal mint for, for 20 years. Um, he, the emperor used it to pay his soldiers, his officials, and his suppliers. It bore the imperial seal. And it differed from the copper coins used by the Roman Senate. And it was the coin with which subjected peoples, in theory, were required to pay the tribute. Tiberius even made it a capital crime to carry any coin stamped with his image into a bathroom or a brothel. In short, the Dendarius was the tangible representation of the emperor's power, wealth, deification, and subjugation. Now, circulation of, of Tiberius's denarii in Judea was likely scarce. Um, so the only people who tr- routinely transacted with the denarius in Judea would have likely been soldiers, Roman officials, and Jewish leaders in collaboration with Rome. Thus, it's noteworthy that Jesus himself doesn't exactly doesn't possess the coin. The questioner's quickness to produce the coin at Jesus' request implies that they routinely used it, taking advantage of financial largesse, whereas of, of Roman financial largesse, whereas Jesus did not. Moreover, the, that the tribute episode takes place in the temple um, implies that or reveals the the religious the questioner's hypocrisy. They bring a potentially profane item, the coin of a pagan, into the sacred space of the temple. Finally, I would point out that the coins of the ancient world were major instruments of imperial propaganda. Um, yes, we can. Promoting agendas and promulgating deeds of their issuers, in particularly the, ap- uh, the apotheosis of the emperor. So then we move to the counter question. After seeing the coin, Jesus then poses the counter question. Whose image and inscription is this? Again, this counter question is not necessary to answer the original question as whether it's not, whether it's not, whether or not it's licit to answer the pay taxes. This counter question follows a pattern of formal rhetorical rhetoric common in first century rabbinic literature where an outsider poses a hostile question to a rabbi. The rabbi responds with a counter question. By answering the counter question, the interrogator's position becomes vulnerable to the attack and the rabbi thus refutes the interrogator's position. But Jesus has to base his answer on scripture, preferably using the Torah. I argue that the use of the word image in the first part refers to the first or the second commandment's prohibition against creating false gods. Second part, the use of the word inscription, refers to the Jewish prayer, the Shema. Now, Shema is a Jewish prayer. It's one of the holiest prayers a Jewish person can say. And it commands a person to love God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it also requires a person to bind the words of the Shema metaphorically in his heart, mind, and inscribe them literally on the door, their doorposts and city gates. Uh, observant worshipers use, a, a, I think it's pronounced a teflon. Um, about, oh, back in uh, January, a, a, a Jewish teenager uh, brought a, a U.S. air flight to an emergency landing by, by tying one of these on. I don't know if you remember that in the news. Trying to pray, he was trying to pray on a U.S. air flight from LaGuardia, and they thought it was a bomb. So these little, these little, this little leather, leather uh, box, and they, they, these have words of scripture in them. So they literally bind these words, words of scripture, uh, to their hearts and to their bodies and to the doorposts. So. What's the inscription look like? This is the coin itself. What, when they answer, they say, what, what's the answer to the counter question? 
The, feeble, the verbal answer is Caesar's image is on there. Okay, well, the actual image and inscription is much more revealing. The front of the denarius shows a profiled bust of Tiberius. We see here that this is clearly a Roman Empire. Um, what's on the what's what's the inscription around this? This is a, this is an abbreviation for Tiberius Caesar, um, uh, and it stands for Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the uh, god Augustus. And on the back, you've got the Roman goddess of peace. Some say that's Tiberius' mother. And this is, this is, uh, Pontifex Maximus. So you've got the, you know, what is the most, I think the most richly ironic, uh, uh, passage in, in perhaps the entire scriptures. You have, uh, the, the, uh, you have the Son of God and the High Priest of Peace, Jesus Christ, newly proclaimed by his people to be a king, holding the tiny silver coin of a king who claims to be the son of a god and the high priest of Roman peace. I'm going to skip ahead here because I want to... It's only after this cycle of coin counter question does Jesus answer the original question with the famous render under God. So this begs the question of what's God's? In the Hebrew tradition, everything belonged to God. Your whole heart, your soul, your mind. The land of Israel, even the gold and silver in that land. The first fruits, all of your produce belonged to God. Well, what did the emperor claim? Well, if you look at his coin, he claims that everything belongs to him. He's a god himself. Roman occupiers occupied the land. And even the peace, Roman peace. This Pontifus Maximus, the goddess of peace here, it says, Roman peace is attributable to God. So what Jesus is saying here is that the claims of God and Caesar are mutually exclusive. It has nothing to do with taxes. Really, all Jesus is doing is simply inviting his readers to choose their allegiance. I also argue that within the context of the Gospels, the tribute episode is a part of what I call subtle sedition. Now, subtle sedition refers to scenes throughout the Gospels which were not overtly treasonous and would have not directly threatened Roman authorities, but which delivered political messages that first century Jewish audiences would have immediately recognized. And the Gospels are replete with these, issues, with these instances of subtle sedition. Pointing these are not to argue that Jesus saw himself as a, as a political messiah. Uh, it's simply to argue that there are just these times in the Gospels where the Gospel writers like to poke at the eyes of the Romans. Just, just subtle little pokes, little nudges. I'm not going to go through all of these. I just want to point out one, and that's the what I, uh, curing a legion of demons. There's one in, in St. Mark's Gospel. St. Mark details an encounter with the Gerasene demoniac. Um, the territory of the Gerasenes was pagan territory, and this particular demoniac was extremely strong and frightening. In attempting to exercise this demon, Jesus asked him his name, and this demon replied, Legion is my name, and there are many of us. Jesus expels this demon and casts him into a herd of swine. Well, first century readers would have been well acquainted with the name Legion. At that time, an imperial legion of Roman soldiers was approximately 6,000 troops. Thus, the, the, the demon Legion was an agent of the devil, was a thinly re- re- veiled reference to Roman occupiers of Judea, and swine were considered unclean animals under Jewish law. The symbol of the Roman Legion, by the way, which occupied uh, Jerusalem, they used a boar. That was their symbol on their shields. So the first century audience would have easily grasped the symbolism of uh, casting the demon legion into the herd of unclean swine in driving itself into the sea. 
So what does the Catholic Church say? Well, the Catechism says it's morally obligatory to pay taxes for the common good. I'm not going to debate what the common good says. Catechism also quotes the tribute episode. Interestingly, Catechism does not use the tribute episode to stand for the proposition it's morally obligatory to pay taxes. What the Catechism does use the tribute episode to do is to justify civil disobedience. It says that you must, it uses, quotes the tribute episode to say you must disobey Caesar. You absolutely must disobey Caesar. I'll end with a quote from Dorothy Day, who said, If we rendered unto God all the things that belong to God, there will be nothing left for Caesar. Thank you.